Hello and welcome to the In Publishing Podcast. Our guest this week is Tim Robinson, Group Content Development Director at JPI Media. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Acorn Web Offset, the Yorkshire-based specialist A5 and A4 magazine printer. With high-speed web offset and sheet-fed printing, together with in-house saddle stitching, perfect binding and mailing services, Acorn can cope with the most demanding of production turnarounds. Acorn prides itself on its efficiency and low-cost print production. For more information, visit acornweb.co.uk. Tim Robinson is Group Content Development Director at JPI Media, one of the largest national, regional and local newspaper publishers in the UK, whose brands include The Scotsman, The Yorkshire Post and The Portsmouth News. Tim, welcome to the In Publishing podcast. Hello, Keir. Delighted to be here. You started out as a reporter. Can you talk us through your career path from there to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um... Well, I've been at uh, JPI Media for um, more than 30 years, actually, since the, since the late 80s. Um, this JPI Media was formerly, formerly Johnston Press. And before that, I started at a group that was part of EMAP newspapers, which was um, consumed by Johnston Press in the 90s as, as Johnston Press grew and grew. Um, I've been with the group for, I'm going to say, in excess of 30 31 years. Um, I started as a reporter on a county town newspaper in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire called the Bucks Herald, which was a, um, a at that point was a county town broadsheet. Um, it, it was basically the, the paper of record for the area. Um, everything that happened in, in, the, in that part of Buckinghamshire was in the, in the Bucks Herald every week. Um, the, the Bucks Herald provided my training, sent me off to uh, training school for for six months in the days when when newspaper companies did that um and i started as a as a i suppose a, a raw trainee straight out of university um at the bucks herald and i had a great time i had a i suppose it was a a lot of people a lot of journalists will wax lyrical about their kind of nostalgic view of their reporting years but for me being a reporter on that kind of paper was a it was just a terrific time it was a, it was a very different time it was before the internet before all the kind of things that uh, reporters take for granted now we had we had phone books and phones and a lot of going out and talking to people and uh, we had i suppose we had more more reporters on the ground for our paper so we had a it was a team of about 10, 10 reporters for the bucks herald at that time um, we all had our own patches and the editor insisted that we would go out for for two or three days a week to basically um get our own stories, get our off-diary stories. There weren't uh, stories that were handed into us. It was quite a daunting process. So every week I'd have a huge space to fill. Uh, my area was a little town called Prince's Risborough in Buckinghamshire, where, to be honest, uh, it's a lovely little place, but very little ever actually happens. So one had to be um, quite inventive and quite imaginative about how you approach the news. Um, and to, I think, I suppose, think laterally about uh, filling that space and making things that were relevant to people and that were connected with people. One of the highlights of my time as a reporter was um, I was out in in that in Princess Risborough one day, and I was in the library, and the the librarian introduced me to somebody who said I should talk to, who 
was a lady who remembered that during the Second World War, she remembered a, uh, a big air, air crash but, uh, that was um, a basically a B seven American B seventeen bomber had crashed in near Princess Elizabeth, but the pilot had ordered his crew to bail out and stayed on and steered the plane away from the town um, and crashed into a field and died. Um, but in the process had saved thousands of lives by steering his plane away from the town. Um, and this, this to me, I thought this is a really, this is a fascinating story that had never really been told. Um, so I, I took to this uh, with some, um, some enthusiasm. I traced the pilot and his uh, relatives. He still had a family in North Texas in, in America. Um, I, I went through the, through the Pentagon to find where these people were. Turned out that he'd been honoured with the Purple Heart, the Silver Star, for, for what he'd done. Um, I persuaded my editor, uh, which, was a, which was quite an unusual request at the time in the Bucks Herald, to, to pay for the air ticket to fly me to North Texas. And I, I, I uh, formed a relationship with their local paper over there and I worked with them for a week. I basically, I turned up into this tiny town in North Texas and the whole town, on being told that they now had a war hero that they'd never heard of before, turned out in en masse to meet me. They had a big reception for me. They um, took me to the, the town's uh, high school, presented me with, a, had a big reception and presented me with a 10-gallon hat. I was on the front page of their local newspaper all week um, as a kind of visitor from 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 afar, um, and when I got back, I turned it into a campaign where we um, raised money to build a permanent memorial to 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 the pilot, and um, it was built outside the library. We closed the town centre for a day. We had a parade with a, an honour guard from the local American Air Force base, and they marched up and down the high street for the afternoon. We had lots and lots of coverage with loads of people involved. I suppose. Um, it was, I suppose the point of this story was, it taught me that news isn't just reporting things that happen and events. And often those events aren't necessarily always there, particularly in some of the kind of smaller marketplaces that we serve. You have to, you have to either seek it out, or you have to think about uh, relevant ways of, 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 make, of connecting with people and using your imagination to generate stories. Um, and I, I, I was um, lucky enough to I got EMAP Newspapers Trainee of the Year Award for that. Um, and it was, I suppose it was the beginning of me thinking how to treat news differently. It wasn't just, it was about being proactive, but doing things which, which connect deeply with people um, in, a, in a way that is really relevant. And after, uh, after the Bucks Herald, I went on to a number of papers. I was uh, edited several weeklies. Um, I was editor of the Rutland and Stamford Mercury in Stamford in Lincolnshire, which is uh, Britain's oldest continuously published newspaper, one of the oldest papers in the world, but certainly the oldest in Britain. Um, it has um, and had at the time a really a fascinating, complete archive of every edition back to 1712, which was a, a marvel to go and sit in there and look at that kind of first draft of history and you could you could look at things like the Montgolfier brothers first balloon flight or the Napoleonic wars or or all manner of uh, news events which were reported by the mercury in in centuries past um while I was there I started a campaign to um take what was quite a dusty room full of newspapers into a properly um archived a properly treated archive that would um 
uh, be be present for generations past. And um, we, we attracted heritage lottery funding. The campaign continued long after I was there and got to the point where they had proper conservators uh, look after the whole archive and handed it over to a charitable trust. And it's now in a really good shape that uh, future generations can still go and consult and use it as a historical um, historical resource, which I think is really important. So, I mean, there's some, some incredible stories there. And, and from that, you went on to Lincolnshire newspapers? Yes, I was uh, managing editor of our Lincolnshire titles. Um, uh, I worked at the Grantham Journal as well. Um, I think we, a lot of these places were relatively small market towns. They had um, that kind of uh, place in common. And again, they're not the most, um, I suppose the, the word newsworthy doesn't necessarily apply. And, you know, there's no, these aren't big events happening there. You have to think very hard about what is going to connect with people and what's going to be the most relevant and not, not just stuff that comes in the door. Um, when I was at Grantham, we ran lots of campaigns that questioned authority, questioned decisions that were being made about people's lives. Uh, we, we, for example, we organised um, a campaign to save Grantham's hospitals, accident and emergency department. That really chimed with people. Um, the highlight of it was organising a big rally in the park uh, where astonishingly 7,000 people turned up. We, um, we had a day of speeches and rallies and... Um, that was the pinnacle of a campaign. It was successful. It resulted in the complete change of the management of the health trust um, and the saving of the A&E department for, uh, for more than a decade, uh, which was a fantastic um, way of galvanising people's feelings. And I was, I was really proud that the paper was, a, was kind of like the, the, the uh, structural force behind that, that pulled people together and made them um, uh, unite behind something that was really important to them. We did lots of other things as well. We did lots of uh, kind of less serious things. We did lots of things about beasts in the countryside, strange wildlife, uh, just jokey things that entertained people. We tried to create a mixture of, in our papers, things that entertained people, informed them, but made them look forward to reading the paper and, and just, you know, not just uh, reacting to. Uh, crime and then usual diet news all that stuff was there but it wasn't necessarily at, at the forefront all the time it was trying to I suppose the lesson I learned from it was that our content has to be more relevant to people and just try and connect with them about the things that they really want to be interested to read so after that I, um, I was group editor of our West Yorkshire titles as editor of the Halifax Courier which is a daily title at the time um, and then I went on to a to a group role which I, I has developed into what I do now. So I suppose uh, over 20 odd years, I had quite a, an exposure to local titles on a, on a really grassroots level. And it, it's the, it was a hugely enjoyable experience, but it also taught me a lot about trying to understand readers and producing content that's relevant to them. So coming to your role today, what does being Group Content Development Director entail so i look after jpi um has around about 130 news brands across the uk as you said at the beginning uh they range from the very small to the large and the large regional um the bit that i look after is the central centrally organized editorial team so 
other parts of the community news function. Uh, we've got community news reporters who look after the, the kind of lower level community news across the country. Um, not, the, not necessarily the live breaking news, but the stuff that comes in from our communities um, and that forms the sort of backbone of our printed papers. Um, we have a, like I say, we have a network of about 80 reporters in all of our uh, newsrooms that produce that. We have um, a community sports section that focuses on um, lower level kind of sport, not your not your Premier League football, but your um, or community based uh, sporting stuff that touches lots of people in in those markets. Uh, I also look after the print design team. Um, so uh, a number of years ago, we centralised our production function, and most of our papers are produced with a high amount of templating, but we've, we've, we also have a, a, a core group of designers who design the front pages and, and the kind of special treatment pages of our papers that, that require human intervention, if you sort of mean, that, that require proper high quality design. Um, and I look after them. And I also look after things like our central data and investigations team um, and all of the kind of external um, contracts and things like that that we, we where we buy in content for our group from people like PA and Getty and, and those kind of things. So my, my role is really about central content in the um, in the way that it's produced by a team that, that produces stuff for many titles, uh, either from a central place or producing it from one region and it's used in lots of different titles across the country. So what are the strategic content goals for JPI Media across your multimedia news brands? So uh, I suppose in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is maximising our audience, but maximising it in an, in an engaged way. And I'll, I'll try and explain that. Bit. I, we're we're organised regionally, so uh, each of our regions has an editorial director. Um, and the editorial director sit on a board with people like myself and the central digital director, we're led by our editor-in-chief, Jeremy Clifford. And strategically, um, we're trying to, I suppose, continually um, engage our readers in a way that uh, encourages them to buy the paper. But we recognise that the, the, the papers are declining and we're continually trying to move that um, engagement online so that people will find reasons to consume our content online in an engaged way so it's you know the, the years when everything was about volume and um, trying to generate maximum amount of page views that has been replaced in some ways by a focus on making people uh, pay for our online content in a way that they find rewarding and and remain with us so uh, whilst we have uh, a number of uh, you know very important newsprint products the future for all of us, obviously, is in digital. And we're trying to uh, transfer our readers from, from print to digital and to build a really large base of people who are, who are happy to pay for excellent content that's relevant to their lives. Um, it's some, a lot of that will focus on local media and local content that's, that's about the, their town, their street, those things. But the central part of it, the, the bit that, that um, uh, is produced by a lot of my, my teams, is around the stuff that goes right across that. So it's stories that can be produced in one place that can be uh, and used many times. So like our data team uh, use uh, st create stories which are 
kind of like a base story, which then local teams take and build their own versions of. We're trying to, I suppose, uh, remain as relevant as possible and to f- keep finding new ways of connecting with readers across across the UK. And as you've touched on, there's been much centralisation of editorial and production functions. What has been the driving motivation behind that? Uh, in, in all honesty, the, the, I suppose the driving motivation has been controlling our, our cost base and controlling our resources. So all local media have been really challenged, particularly over the last decade. And with necessity has been the mother of invention in this process. So it's, it has made us look at how we can produce things in a less labour intensive way so that we can always protect the people who create the content. So all of the kind of production elements of uh, the teams that I deal with, we've tried to find increasingly more innovative ways of dealing with the production side of it so that the people who create the content are freed from, I suppose, the shackles of you know, designing pages, creating, uh, turning out print pages, um, turning out um, things which are, aren't about writing and aren't about um, reporting there are the, the the production elements of those we've tried to centralize as much as possible so it started very much with the with print design um i suppose um we're trying to free resource so that we can concentrate on our digital future um in the past uh it, it, that, that, i think people can confuse that process of cross-control with a reduction in quality and that isn't necessarily the case so when we uh, centralize all of our production of the pages of our newspapers we we employed um, as consultants some of Europe's um, top newspaper designers to design our news pages and our templates so that the readers would get the very best quality and as well as um, increasing the the level of efficiency of those production processes I think we also significantly increased the quality and the appearance of our printed papers and the way in which they they were presented to readers. So I think there is a way that you can reduce costs and increase quality. Uh, and I think we've, we've, we've tried to prove that over over many years. Um, and I suppose that's that's where we will continue to seek new ways of doing things, new ways of producing content. So we're looking at all kinds of things like automated content generation, uh, data journalism, which we'll perhaps talk about in a moment, but um, things which enable us to produce lots of content at scale, but with a, a less and a minimum amount of resources. You mentioned the JPI Media Investigations Team, which I believe is something you've been closely involved with. Why was that unit set up? And can you tell us about some of the particularly noteworthy investigations that it has um, that it's been doing? Sure. So this is something I'm 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 really I've been really proud and excited about in the last three or four years. So uh, I think we it was recognised that um, we had we had some particularly good investigative reporters in our teams, um, and the, especially there was a. Uh, one of our my colleagues, Asma Day, who was um, investigative reporter in the Northwest, who was turning out some fantastic uh, investigative content around social issues, about things that were happening in the Northwest. We felt that we wanted to scale that up to a national level. So 
what we did was we selected people from across our regions who would act as a kind of virtual network of investigative reporters. And we, we let them, we set them free to, to come up with ideas um, to investigate big social issues. They use a variety of techniques. So they use mass freedom of information requests to local authorities, to government, to, to all sorts of uh, institutions. They use data analysis. And they, they focus on issues which are a kind of, the kind of things that we wouldn't necessarily have time for individual newspaper titles to, to um, investigate. But as a collective of uh, 10 or 11 reporters, their, their, their collective efforts have produced some fantastic things. So we've looked at things like um, the NHS. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a... Um, a scheme by the NHS to produce something called the Sustainability and Transformation Plans, uh, which was changing the nature of the way that the NHS would run. We did a lot of investigation into that. We were the first people that, that kind of joined all the dots between all of the different regions' uh, plans into one big national picture. And the way this worked was we had a, we had a national title at the time, the I newspaper, which was part of our portfolio at that point. Um, we would run a national level story for them and then lots of regional stories based on the, the work that, that the reporters did. So we got both a, a national and a local angle to, to this kind of package. Um, the the I used to do tremendous work with that. So they would take the NHS one, for example, they ran across eight or eight pages a day for a week, really maximum kind of coverage at a national level. Um, and these kind of things w were are agenda changing in their in their nature we did a thing about um a death by dangerous driving so we 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 had a mass foi of all courts in the country to see how many people would actually receive the maximum sentence for causing death by dangerous driving in the last uh 15 years and it turned out nobody had ever received the maximum sentence which was at the time was 14 years uh that's a that's a terrifying statistic and also Behind it were loads and loads of local stories for people whose uh, families, whose friends have been killed by uh, uh, either drunken drivers or people driving dangerously and recklessly, um, people whose lives have been ruined and the people who were responsible for it hadn't received anywhere near uh, the maximum sentence. And our, um, our lobbying in that formed part of the government's review into sentencing the government at the time, Dave Cameron's government, decided that, that they actually committed to increasing that to, to a life sentence. That hasn't actually been enacted yet, but we're hoping to revisit that at some point because uh, that was a promise issued by the government at the time and something they haven't made good on yet. So these these are, um, okay, I guess these big sort of national stories have many local angles. So we did, we did another one last year about uh, the PFI scheme. So these are private finance initiatives to... Um, fund infrastructure, schools, hospitals, police stations, all those sort of things that were set up in the early 90s in many cases, for which we are still paying ridiculous amounts of money. So we found many, many examples of absurd uh, anomalies like a whole police station custody suite that had been built and never used that the price cost of millions, uh, a sink in a hospital, which... which um, the, the contractor was still charging rent for every year. Um, just just absurd um, kind of cost anomalies that had slipped through the net that 
hadn't really been exposed. And um, those are the kind of things that you know, it's quite hard to investigate as a single reporter, but as a as a as a nationwide team, the things that we were able to expose. And we did other you know, things like knife crime in schools. Uh, we did a really interesting one about the epidemic of suicides amongst ex-military personnel, uh, which won us quite a prestigious award, the Mind Media Award last year. Um, again, these are these are really important issues to our readers. Um, and things which we we which newspaper groups struggle regionally to cover, but the, the, our combined efforts uh, managed to get them lots of exposure and, and generate some really fascinating stories. And you said that the eye paper played an important role in that investigations team. Um, can you tell us more about the decision to sell the eye newspaper to DMGT last year? Yeah, I think. Um, the 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 eye is a is I suppose uh, is a fantastic newspaper. I I'm sure anybody who's familiar with it uh, will will agree with that. And that it has such an incredibly loyal readership, and that's because it struck a really um, clever uh, mix of content and the way in which it's presented. So it's a quality newspaper presented in digest format. So it began life as a a version of the Independent. Uh, the Independent sold it to uh, Johnston Press in 2016, and when when the Independent went uh, online only, and the the I then continued to be uh, a, a really great success in its own right. And I think Ollie Duff, the editor there, and the team that worked there, um, they have some tremendous people that that are really dedicated to producing a, an incredibly high quality paper, but a paper which is. Um, uh, it's cheap to buy. It's, easy, it's quick and easy to read. It's a really, um, it's a, it's a really good read, uh, and one that's really hit the spot with its market. I think the the reason that it was sold by us is, well, I suppose the figures speak for themselves. Um, it was bought by us for by by us. I mean, Jay Johnston Press in around in 2016 for around 22 million. We it was sold to DMG for 49 million in 2019. And in the process, they generated around about 11 million profit each, up to 11 million profit each year. So I think the figures speak for themselves. As a business success, it was a very attractive proposition. Um, and the, news, the reason for its sale, uh, obviously, I'm not, I'm not completely party to that, but the, the, thing, the figures, figures speak for themselves in that it was you know, a really attractive acquisition for them uh, and one which... Um, had been as tremendous success for for uh, us as a as a company under under um, JPI stewardship. So we just hope it continues to be a success in the future. Indeed, indeed. You mentioned data journalism before. How important is data journalism in the news media mix? <laughs> um, well, I think growing. I think we our exposure to data journalism has been relatively new. I think there are there are in places in America and other parts of Europe. It's it's much more embedded in the newsroom culture. But for uh, UK regional uh, media, it's been a relatively new thing for us. It, it became very much a uh, part of our content mix as a result of uh, the partnership that we have with the BBC. So the BBC uh, a few years ago in a charter renewal process <clears throat> had to commit to funding. 
a number of things. And so they they come up, they fund um, local democracy reporters who report on um, courts and councils across the UK. Um, and those people, in many cases, sit in our newsrooms, but are paid for by the BBC. And as a uh, kind of side um, project to that, they set up a shared data unit where they would train and equip uh, people from the regional press with data journalism skills. So basically, we send people every three times a year to the BBC for a long secondment of their, their data union in Birmingham to learn data journalism processes, to understand the skills that are required. Um, and then they come back to us and they're basically their former an alumni of people that have skills which are, I guess, completely new to our newsrooms, um, data analysis, website scraping, um, producing content from publicly available data, of which there are, there are many, many untapped sources of those things from public authorities, from um, on health, on crime, on, on all manner of things. And what we did was to take a couple of those people and to form a small data unit, um, which, which generates data content for the whole group. So they'll produce stories based on uh, either data that, that's been made available to them um, readily or things which they've gone and sought out via freedom of information requests. And they write stories which then form the basis of stories which can be replicated more than 100 times in different versions across our portfolio. Um, it's, 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 I think it's a really interesting development because it, um, it accesses new types of content, but things which are really relevant to people. So um, Claire Wilde, who leads the unit, does it looks at all kind of um, things which are, which, which are quite surprising. So things like... Um, um, aircraft having near misses with drones, for example, uh, that was a, uh, one that really surprised us. It was really high level of those. Uh, something that was in the news about a year ago, but we, but um, it was it, it, the full picture of that didn't emerge until she she'd found some uh, data from the Civil Asia, Aviation Authority that showed it was actually happening all the time across the country at various different airports. Um, you know, more obscure things like that or or, or, or things like crime analysis, uh, the kinds of um, crime that's in your town and in your street, health authority information, all of those things which are really highly relevant to our, to our readers and are within reach, but they require a certain set of um, analytic skills to be able to access and turn into interesting content. Well, you talked earlier about your own early days in journalism at a time when... Uh, when uh, reporters were still picking up phone books rather than using Google. How do the skill sets uh, required of someone entering journalism today differ from what was required when you started out? (laughs) That's, um, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I I suppose, um, I think some of the kinds of things that we're talking about here, data analysis and uh, understanding how to work with spreadsheets, uh, understanding how to process numbers, those things will become increasingly more important, I think. I think if I had my time again, uh, clearly, I would definitely train as a, uh, I would, you know, get that kind of training and, and embrace that kind of um, skills. The understanding of writing digital content and how you write for the web and how you uh, interact with audiences through social um uh, social media, all those things, they, these are all very new things. But I suppose at the fundamental core of those, there's still a lot of things in common with um, 
when I was a reporter in terms of you know understanding what readers are interested in, trying to find uh, stories about things that kind of generate their engagement. Um, it's just that there, there are still some fundamental things I think, but then but I you know reporters need to now to embrace new ways of doing that potentially. So it's not it, there are differences, but there are still some there are a lot of things in common I believe. Looking across your titles in terms of editorial design and production, where do you see room for improvement, both in print and online? And what plans do you have in the pipeline? So um, I think our, our, our battle for readers' attentions continues, whether that's in print or online. We are continually competing. In, uh, we always have been, but we, we are continually competing for their attention and what we, when i say that we're, we're that's much more intensive now people have access to to media of all kinds uh immediately in their hands right now it's 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 uh it's a much more intensive battle um so our content has to be much richer much more engaging um it has to be um, much more immediate we have to understand i guess you know what really makes people want to read something but once they're once they're engaged by that, what keeps them reading? So um, we're doing lots of work on incorporating uh, storytelling graphics, on long-form storytelling, on data visualization, explaining uh, complex data processes through through visuals, through graphics. Um, we're looking at things like automation of our products. So print automation, how we can make the, the generation of those things more efficient, how we can generate graphics more automatically. Um, I think we're continually looking at ways that engage people um, both online and in print. And as print, I suppose, becomes more of a niche area, it's, it makes the, the demand for innovation much greater um, in a way that we're trying to just continually maintain reader interest. Um, so we can't afford to just serve up the same types of content and the same types of presentation that we always have. We've got to continually look at how that can change and how that can react to the marketplace. Um, and I think that will that process will never end. Uh, so it just it gives us a lot of um, impetus to be innovative. Well, I'm quite impressed that we've got more than 34 minutes into the interview and I haven't yet mentioned COVID. That's but, really uh, good. <laughs> but, um, but I am going to mention it now and ask how your area of the business has been affected by the pandemic. I think like everybody, uh, our world has been turned upside down. So I'm sitting in an office today, but there's there's no one else here. Um, that's a really strange kind of uh, adjustment. I know everybody's had to make, but the having empty newsrooms, people working remotely, that's been a really big challenge, particularly to, I'm sure, to the frontline news teams that we have. Um, and the reduction in, um, I suppose, a lot of the, the kind of areas of content has been a challenge. So sport, um, our entertainments, events, all of those things which which are gradually coming back now, but which stopped for a long time, meant that um, that, was a, that was a significant challenge to, to all of our our um, content producers as to you know well, what do we do now what do we write about now how do we how do we continue to drive interest so um, in our community teams that's been that's been a really interesting process so we've had to take a very hard look at um, 
what really drives people's interest. Um, we've learned quite a lot of lessons, I think, as we as we emerge from this. Hopefully, we're beginning to slowly emerge from it. Um, we, I guess, we understand more about um, what is a different emphasis about lifestyle and sport and the kind of things that we are traditional content staples. And I suppose just to give you some examples of that. We, we, we looked very closely at the um, social trends about sharing during lockdown and the things that people were interested in reading. Some of them were very transitory, but they were very different to the kind of things that we necessarily uh, would form the, the natural content for our papers so and our website. So people uh, you know, had a fixation about baking for, for, for a few weeks and baking banana bread and getting hold of flour and that kind of thing. You know, and that became a kind of uh, sub-national uh, obsession. Um, none of that content is the sort of thing that we would normally carry in our newspapers but, uh, or, or necessarily online, but those are the things that people were talking about. So it kind of um, made us think, are we, do we need to adjust what our lifestyle offering is? Similarly with sport, you know, people with, with the absence of uh, um, organised sport, is, is sport going to be different? Is, are people more interested in sport in, as a leisure activity in their own lives rather than just watching it? Are they more interested in understanding you know content about uh park runs or their own uh sport their own running achievements rather than you know uh under, you know uh, being spectators so it's a much more involved process so it's i suppose what i'm saying is it's led us to question some of the uh long-held kind of staple ideas around our content and what we can do in order to to respond to that challenge um and that's going to be an, an interesting process as we as we come come out of this um, this national crisis about how we then re reflect the aspirations of our readers and what remains relevant to them. It's been a tough time for for the regional news sector as a whole. When you look at the outlook for the regional news sector, are you optimistic or pessimistic, and why? Um, I have to be optimistic here. I think um, uh, we can't be anything else. I think. Um, I talked a little while ago about the Stanford Mercury, you know, from um, more than 300 years ago. I mean, that's that, that paper has existed and continues to exist over you know, a dozen lifetimes, and it has adapted and uh, innovated continually to, to, to the challenges that it's faced and the changes in technology and reading habits and all of those things. I think, um, and that's an ob object lesson to me, that we, you know, we, it, we need to survive because... Um, local media is, is still very important to people, and I think it's it can it should at its best reflect um, some terrific, uh, terrifically important values of our democracy, and you know without being too pompous about it, things which are really important to people's lives. That that, that if we weren't there, it would make a it would make a huge difference in terms of uh, informing them and scrutiny and all those kind of things. I think so. I suppose the short answer is I'm, I have to be optimistic that we must find the ways to innovate to survive. Um, I know that the future will be very different. That's the certainty here, that everything we do will be very different in you know, a month's time, six months, a year, 10 years' time. But um, it, will be, it will continue to be different. Uh, but I do have a really strong, passionate feeling that we should be there and as long as we, we can find those ways of remaining relevant to people, that we will be here. 
Finally, you you have a great passion for your work and and for regional news and everything you do. But outside of work, what do you do to relax? Um, outside of work, uh, I have a I have a family and a couple of teenagers who keep me very busy. Uh, I suppose uh, this isn't very relaxing, but I guess one of the more interesting things that I've done in recent times is um, I've been doing some work in my own time outside of work for um, something called the Thompson Foundation, which I'm sure um, listeners to this podcast may well have heard of. It's a, it's a charity which encourages ethical journalism in countries where there are there is no, not necessarily a tradition of um, uh, st- a strong journalistic tradition or emerging nations. And I've done some really, um, for me, some really fascinating work for them in recent years. So, um, for example, I've been to uh, the Middle East to to teach um, in design and design to um, uh, uh, journalists who work in the Sudan, um, who work on uh, United Nations publications. So I've been able to uh, pass on some of the things that I've learned about production and design to to, to some of those people who um, are working in a really completely different environment to the one that um, my colleagues work in, you know, they, they basically work in a war zone, in a really, you know, in a very challenging kind of area, but they still produce newspapers and magazines. Um, so that was absolutely fascinating. And more recently, um, I went to um, to Malaysia at the invitation of the Malaysian Press Institute to teach um, course, a course in um, ethical journalism and fact verification to reporters from Malaysian newspapers and websites. Um, but Malaysia is a, is a country where they've been through um, um, a huge government corruption scandal in recent years. There's been a culture of um, censorship and, uh, I suppose, deference. Um, and the reporters who work in those titles aren't necessarily used to asking questions probing questions or 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 checking both sides of stories they're much more more used to a tighter control of information from from official sources and uh, it's really interesting to to i suppose to be involved in that process of talking to them about verification of facts about telling both sides of the story about learn about applying basic journalistic principles that i guess we take for granted um in countries like our own, so I've learned a lot from that. It's been it's been really rewarding. And um, uh, had the um, had the world not gone completely bad this year with travel, I, I would have, I would have hoped to do that. So perhaps I'll be able to pick that up at some point soon. Well, Tim, it's been absolutely fascinating uh, hearing all about your your work and your career. Um, so thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. A big thank you again to Acorn Web Offset for sponsoring this podcast. If you're looking for a new magazine printer, then check out their website at acornweb.co.uk or contact Matt Carey on 07714 299 105 or by email at matthew.carry at acornweb.co.uk. Many thanks to Tim for being our guest this week. 
You can follow Tim on Twitter where his handle is at puretimrobinson. He has also written a number of articles for In Publishing magazine, which you can find by searching Tim Robinson at inpublishing.co.uk. Thank you for listening and please join me next week on the In Publishing podcast. Podcast.